featured on his greatest known and most successful album, Year of the Cat. Lord Grenville, the first titled track, takes as its inspiration a key moment that happened in 1591 during the Battle of Flores, fought off the coast of the island of the same name. I deliberately use the word inspiration as the subject, Lord Grenville, is mentioned in the third person through the words of the sailors on board the ship, and then his background, exploits or character are rarely discussed in length or depth. The basis of the song seems to take into account what happened with Grenville and his ship the Revenge during the battle. It might seem an odd choice to pick Grenville as a naval man, a vice-admiral of the fleet as the subject for a song. Other contenders such as Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh or Horatio Nelson might have jumped more readily to mind to capture the adventurism and heroic nature of men at sea, while using a well-known individual as a basis to the song. Yet this is a misunderstanding. It was precisely the situation that Grenville was in, isolated and cut off from the remaining fleet, and his ultimate decision, according to historian Giles Milton, of utterly refusing to turn from the enemy, that forms the meaning behind the song. The song explores these actions through the mouthpiece of the sailors that fought with him that day demonstrating their pain and angst as it became apparent that all was lost. Something that reflects contemporary accounts, as this podcast will show. Also, the song in many ways, as so many of our songs do, uses history to build a picture or a metaphor of our own lives. My personal interpretation is that he uses the emotive words of the sailors as a metaphor for moving on in life, leaving behind familiarity, someone or something, explore a new start. At first they plead for him to change his tactics, then becoming resigned to their fate, and then showing despair. Al would always call this one of his sea songs, yet this does a disservice to his work. I would argue that it is much more than that. Lord Grenville was an interesting character. He had a distinguished and interesting career before piloting the revenge in the Battle of Flores. One of his first forays in the wider world was actually political, rather than something to do with the sea. He had become a member of parliament for Dunheavid, Launceston, in 1562, for a brief period dealing with important issues. Very little is actually known about what he did as an MP, yet his interest in all things maritime as such was still not present in his twenties. In fact, in his twenties, he was more preoccupied with trying to clear his name as Grenville had become warranted as a murderer after killing a man in a duel. Thankfully, after much writing and persuading, he did challenge this, and his name was eventually cleared for a pardon. In the 1560s, his lust for fighting led him into the services of the Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian, and he was involved in fighting the Hungarian campaign against the Turks in 1566. It would seem the land was beckoning Grenville, rather more than the sea was. Many biographies of Grenville state that he would not start his maritime career until his forties, with many accounts citing his beginnings of all things naval when he became a commissioner for the works at Dover Harbour. Yet other sources talk of Grenville dabbling in being a merchant at sea slightly earlier. One can trace with some sources that as far back as 1573, Grenville was making links with it, 
where at the age of 31, Grenville made an agreement with two Italian merchantmen to transport goods to New Haven in France. This expedition, however, was fraught with disagreements, and a lawsuit was issued by the Florentines, who changed the destination to Calais and then had the gall to criticise Grenville for changing his mind. However, a firm position as commissioner would be the turning point in his career. During that time, he worked on the design of a new pier, and according to A. L. Rouse, he very competently performed the drawing of the sketch plan to indicate his design. Yet just like an earlier moment in his life, the position of commissioner at Dover Harbour was quickly given to someone else by April 1583. However, Grenville, as quick as he dropped his role at Dover, boarded a ship on the 9th of April for foreign climes, to aid Sir Walter Raleigh, his cousin, with ventures abroad in the Virginia colony. Raleigh had been given a patent in March by the Queen to command and settle the colony. Grenville would not pass this up as a chance. In the late 1580s, Grenville was becoming much more accustomed to the life of an adventurer on the open seas, akin to tales told about men like Sir Francis Drake and Sir John Hawkins. On one homeward voyage to England, he came face to face with a Spanish ship that he overpowered and captured. In 1585, Grenville went to Roanoke to find some men that had been left behind by the departing Drake. So, Grenville aptly seized the situation to rebuild the colony. After leaving the shores of North America again, he came into contact with the Spanish and proceeded to capture a vessel and raid the Azores by pillaging them for resources. The 1580s was the next turning point in Grenville's life. It was the point that he had distinguished himself as a true naval commander. This can be emphasised most clearly by the fact that he was appointed Vice Admiral of the Navy to protect the nation against the Spanish in 1588. Grenville had made his name in the affairs upon the seas. The next and last chapter in Grenville's life would take place during the year of 1591. The Anglo-Spanish naval war had been ongoing since 1585, with the Spanish Armada battling with the English fleet off its coast in the year of 88. Grenville would take a particular role in this war when he was appointed as the second-in-command of a naval force under Lord Thomas Howard. The mission that Howard laid before him was to accompany the naval force of 22 warships to intercept and capture the annual Spanish treasure convoy before they could move away from the snare. Alonso de Pazan learned what the English were going to do in late August. 63 warships would encounter the 22 the English had. The Spanish fleet closed in upon the English at an inopportune time, as most of the crew were ashore suffering from fever, and many ships were undergoing repairs. Grenville made a decision that arguably was a mistake. When many of the ships departed and managed to leave the harbour, he decided to wait for his men, which meant that he slowly became separated from the fleet. According to historian Trevor Breverton, he decided to go straight through the Spaniards, rather than going round the west coast of Corvo Island. The battle began late on the 31st of August, and this is where Al Stewart's songs, writings, pick up from. 
The revenge under the command of Lord Grenville felt the overwhelming force bear down upon his ship, almost instantly as it sailed amongst the Spanish fleet. The issue at heart is that no matter how much Grenville put skill and aptitude into fighting the Spanish, he was up against a superior force. Even if Grenville managed to beat off one particular galleon, as he did, another would simply take its place. Grenville employed some marvellous skills in avoiding enemy fire, but as time went on, disillusionment amongst his crew members became more apparent. The song, Lord Grenville, encapsulates this beautifully from its opening stanza. Go and tell Lord Grenville that the tide is on the turn. It's time to haul the anchor up and leave the land astern. The tide had turned for Grenville. For what seemed like a daring venture in the mindset of Richard Grenville to steer his ship into the heart of 22 Spanish ships to see how much havoc could be brought to bear upon the enemy, as the hours passed, it was becoming perfectly clear that this was tantamount to a suicidal mission that only had one outcome. For 15 hours the battle raged in which boarding of the revenge had been fought off and one Spanish galleon sunk. Yet it doesn't take a naval historian to see that sheer superiority would weigh heavily that day. What Al Stewart does really well is to convey the despair and desperation of his men. In the initial verse they begin to suggest that they can leave the land astern, will be gone before the dawn returns, like voices on the wind. Al echoes through the voices of the men the need to make a swift exit. They knew that if they stayed any longer, the day would only conclude with defeat, or even worse, complete annihilation. Yet Al superbly with each subsequent verse shows the pain and anguish as the commander keeps fighting on and on and on. Their dreams have run aground. There's nothing to leave us in this shanty town. None of us care where we're bound, like voices on the wind. The men see their opportunity to escape slip away as time passes on and on. As such, it becomes more difficult with every minute that lapses. It must have been very difficult on that ship as the hours and hours passed, knowing full well that the continuance of zealous and aggressive combat was getting the revenge and its crew nowhere. Historically speaking, this was very much the case. Written accounts show us that the sailors aboard the Revenge sang an evening psalm during the battle. One can only consider that this was done to rouse spirits amongst the beleaguered men and to show devotion to God that they were fighting in his name. In conjunction, Sir Walter Rowley, writing about the battle years later, commented about the dwindling supplies, citing that, and I quote, All the powder of the revenge to the last barrel was now spent. In addition, he comments that compared to the revenge that had 100 free from sickness and fourscore and ten sick, the Spanish were always supplied with soldiers brought from every squadron. In essence, even Sir Walter Raleigh on reflection knew as much as those sailors must have done, that it was a very difficult position to fight in and to continue fighting in. Granted, we must take his account with a large pinch of salt, as it is clearly a superb piece of anti-Spanish propaganda. Nevertheless, factually, it does hold weight. The fact that they continued fighting for a whole 15 hours probably changed the attitude of the men 
from pain and anguish to despair. There is a couple of lines in the song that really do evoke despair that arguably the men on the ship would face towards the end of the 15 hours of battle. Al Stewart paints this despair with the following lines at the start of two conjoining verses. Firstly, go fetch the captain's log and tear the pages out. We're on our way to nowhere now, can't bring the helm about. One can sense from this line that there is nothing left. The suggestion by the men of the destruction of any vital information, such as how many miles of ocean they have traversed, says a lot about the fear that they had that it might be of use to the enemy or be used as evidence in the presumption of their guilt if brought to bear for their rash actions. It also signals the feeling that the men might have had that this was it. In addition, he goes on to write in his lyrics that they should send a message to the fleet, they'll search for us in vain. We won't be there among the reaches of the Spanish main. Tell the ones we left home not to wait. We won't be back again. Confusion, fear or pain has now, with the passage of time, the death of their companions around them and the apparent ruin of their vessel that they have lost, transformed into complete despair. Yet there is something else behind the statement, we won't be back again, as the ship, the Revenge, itself was ordered by Grenville to be sunk, should it get into the hands of the Spanish. This is something in another piece of verse, a poem by Tennyson, spelling out this choice. Sink me the ship, Master Gunner, sink her, split her in twain. For both Tennyson and Stuart, they both evoke this as the final act of the battle, but also the last straw for the men on board. They quite simply had been physically and mentally bled dry and were determined that this would not happen. Historical accounts tell us that Grenville was not about to get his way, and his officers disagreed and stated that they should aptly surrender and ask for the lives of officers and crew to be spared. After a lengthy assurance was given, this was what happened to the revenge. Therefore, as mentioned, the line, we won't be back again, seems a deliberate echo, and a wonderfully artistic one to use as an echo for their last pleas. Grenville himself was mortally wounded during the Battle of Flores, and would not live to see his surrender terms followed. Yet there is a tinge of sadness and lasting truth in the final verse of Al Stewart's song, hence the inclusion of the full quotation. Our time is just a point along a line that runs forever with no end. I never thought that we would come to find ourselves upon these rocks again. Oh no. This verse is abundantly clear in its message and underscores the whole song in its entirety. According to historian Terry Breverton, as the revenge was being taken to the Spanish shores, a dreadful storm whipped and raged off the coast of the Azores. The ship never made it. She hit some rocks off a cliff on a nearby island, and in the process a crew numbering not only 70 Spaniards, but the whole of the English captives, sank. That is what the voices in the song lament, when they speak of finding themselves upon the rocks again. When one looks out to sea, there is no point sending a message to the fleet, 
regardless of them searching in vain. As they said, they won't be there among the reaches of the Spanish main. Those at home are not to wait. For quite simply, a sailor's life is just a point along a line that runs forever with no end. In many regards, by invoking the voices of the men that day, Al Stewart encapsulates not only what happened during the battle, but shows the experiences, the life and death of a sailor on the Tudor high seas.